Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Let's hear about this episode's topic. Hi, Dr. Lena and Dr. Dean. My name is Lori. I am 39 weeks pregnant as a first-time mom due to have my first child any day now. I realized recently that I am prepared for the birth of my baby more than I am for what is going to happen to the newborn after delivery. Is the hepatitis V vaccine really necessary if I know I don't have hepatitis? What about the vitamin K shot? I'd really like to minimize so many interventions right away, but also want to make sure that my baby is safe and healthy. Oh, man. So I have to admit this amazing caller is one of my really close friends. And we had this conversation one day. She called me, you know, getting ready to deliver her first baby. And and she was just like, there's so much to think about um, there. You know, what what's going to happen to him after he's born? Do I really need all of these interventions for him? Walk me through it. Why do I need it? And I thought, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that that is confusing, and we should do a podcast on this. Mm-hmm, because everybody is really good at preparing for the birth, the actual birth experience itself, but people don't think much about after the kid is born and the remainder of the hospital stay and what happens like right after delivery. Mm-hmm, totally. And while the majority of your postpartum time in the hospital is going to be learning to breastfeed, if that's your chosen method of feeding and soaking up all the snuggles and little sleep with your new family, there are a few really important medical interventions that we recommend for all newborns. And I know Dr. Dean is familiar with a few of these because they are really important in protecting kids from infections. We lovingly refer to them as the eyes and the thighs. <laughs> You're right about that, because um, two of these interventions are important for preventing serious infections in the newborn and complications from the diseases later in life. And so these are the first hepatitis B vaccine and then the eye ointment, the erythromycin eye ointment. Mm-hmm. So we will discuss the rationale behind both of these and why they're so important. Your newborn's also going to receive an injection in the muscle of vitamin K. So we'll talk about that. That's really important to ensure that the blood is able to clot properly. Mm-hmm. And then all new- newborns also will have a newborn screen collected and have a hearing screen performed, and congenital heart disease screen. Right. So we're limiting our discussion here to the basics. So these are the basics that all babies will be offered. Of course, there's some special, unique circumstances. So, for example, if you have gestational diabetes, they may be monitoring your baby's blood sugars after they're born. All babies will have their bilirubin monitored in some way or another. Some male infants, if you choose, may undergo circumcision, but the Hep B vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine, erythromycin eye ointment, vitamin K, and the newborn screens we're going to discuss today are universal. So all babies in the U.S. will get them. And many parents have concerns or questions about these interventions. Mm-hmm, right. So, for example, just like my friend asked and many friends have asked before, why do I need to give my newborn a vaccine so early when I was tested by my OB and I know my hep B status is negative? Or why do I have to give my baby eye ointment when I know I don't have an STD? And these are all valid questions, and we will try and convince you today why they are so important. 
So let's start talking about the hepatitis B vaccine. So medical groups and professional societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and the Center for Disease Control, they all recommend that every baby get the hepatitis B vaccine within the first 24 hours of birth. Mm -hmm. And so what is hepatitis B? Why is this so important? So hepatitis B is a virus that spread through blood or other bodily fluids, and it enters your bloodstream and it attacks the liver and it leads to really significant damage. So sometimes even liver failure called cirrhosis or liver cancer. And when babies are infected, as opposed to adults or getting infected later in life, they're more likely to be asymptomatic but go on to develop chronic hepatitis, so hepatitis that lasts their lifetime. So 9 out of 10 babies who are infected when they're born will stay infected for life. And that's really important because most people, when they think about hepatitis, think about acute hepatitis, the acute illness, the fever and the jaundice. But the vast majority of illness, of sickness and death occurs with the chronic infection that gets set up later. And unfortunately, studies have shown that one in four babies who are infected with hepatitis B will go on to die of the complications of hepatitis B, the liver failure from cirrhosis or liver cancer as adults. Mm -hmm. And really, hepatitis B isn't all that uncommon. Even here in the U.S., thousands of people are diagnosed yearly, and we have a great immunization program. And worldwide, over 250 million people are infected. Yeah, but unfortunately, there's really no cure for hepatitis B. There are treatments that can control infection, but they don't usually result in cure. You have to take them for the rest of your life. And so the damage that hepatitis B causes remains a concern. But the good news is that the vaccine is really effective. Once your child has received the three-dose series of the vaccine in childhood, which most will get within the first six months of life, they'll have more than 95% protection. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we have convinced parents that the hepatitis B vaccine is important, but I can still see how some parents who know their own risk think that there's little harm in delaying it until their child's one to two month checkup with their pediatrician, especially if they know that status is negative and they know the baby's only going to be around them. Right. But I like to think of it as an insurance policy. We already discussed that infants and young children who are infected are at much higher risk of complications of disease. So that's why we want to get them protected really early in life, as early as possible. And as a parent, it's your instinct to do everything you can to protect your newborn. So even if the risk of them getting the disease, getting the infection is low, any risk is really too great when you have the chance to protect them. Yeah, I totally agree with this. In newborns, the most common mode of transmission is from the mother to the baby during delivery if it's vaginal or C-section, but that's not the only way that they can be infected. In other cases, hepatitis B has been spread by saliva or other bodily fluids or close contact with family members that you might not even know are infected or they might not even know are infected. So it's really important to get this vaccine. Right. And so for all these reasons, and considering that hepatitis B is transmitted by ways that are outside the usual, the classic transmission risks, it's really critical to get your newborn protected as early as possible. And in addition, newborns who receive this immunization at birth are more likely to stay up to date on their immunization schedule for the remainder of childhood. Which, of course, we as pediatricians are completely in favor of. 
So, Dr. Dean, what are the side effects that a newborn could experience getting the hep B vaccine? So all vaccines have adverse effects, but it's important to know that hepatitis B vaccine is an extremely safe vaccine, and it usually just results in maybe pain and redness at the injection site. That's the most common vaccine reaction. Mm-hmm. And you can help decrease this discomfort by doing skin-to-skin or breastfeeding. And we did have more discussion on this, minimizing pain and anxiety around interventions in our recent episode on the topic. In the end, it's going to be a parent's unique decision as to whether they want to opt for immunizing their child after birth against hepatitis B. But you can tell that Dr. Dean and I are in resounding support of this first dose of protection. Absolutely. Now let's move on to erythromycin eye ointment. Oh yeah, this one is always fun because just when you're ready to gaze lovingly into your newborn's eyes, the nurse will come in and goop some ointment into the eye and then they just like are squinting and they don't want to look at you. But it's to prevent a very feared complication and infection with a very long name, gonococcal ophthalmia neonatorum, or lovingly referred to as goon. <laughs> Is that what people in the ID world refer to it as? No, we no, we call it we use the long name. <laughs> right. And this is a really severe infection of the eye. This can occur in babies born to women with gonorrhea. And if it's not treated, then it can cause serious eye problems, including scarring of the cornea. And this can lead to blindness as early as twenty-four hours after birth. Mm-hmm. And as many people know, gonorrhea is a very common sexually transmitted infection that many women, when they have it, are actually completely asymptomatic from. So even if your obstetrician tests for this STD and it comes back negative, of course, there's always a chance of acquiring it within that period after testing. Um, And so this one's really important. Mm-hmm. The antibiotic ointment provided to newborns is almost 100% effective in preventing this infection, but it does not entirely prevent eye infections from other sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia. These can still occur, and the children can be symptomatic even a few weeks later. Right. So if you're noticing a lot of eye discharge after you go home or eye swelling or redness in your newborn, could be a variety of things, some that we don't worry at all about, but it's important to check in with your pediatrician. Mm-hmm. After they get this erythromycin eye ointment, some newborns will experience a small reaction to the ointment, some mild redness or swelling around the eyes. Sometimes their eyes appear cloudy, but that goes away really, really fast. Mm -hmm. It's a one-time application, so it's not something you have to worry about continuing at home. Right. And of course, many parents say, this isn't necessary for my child because I know I don't have a sexually transmitted infection. And while this is true for the vast majority of people, again, such a low-risk intervention, it's a one-time thing, and it can have huge, huge consequences if your baby were to develop the infection. So to me, it just seems worth doing. Really, it's a really simple intervention with a lot of um, benefits. And so for parents that opt Um, out of the erythromycin um, ointment, then usually the hospital will ask the parents to sign a document of refusal. That's how important it is. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk about vitamin K, the vitamin K injection. I can get so fired up talking about this because even in my short career as a pediatrician, I have seen some devastating cases of vitamin K deficiency, deficient bleeding or hemorrhagic disease of the newborn, which is really the feared complication of vitamin K deficiency in newborns. Mm -hmm. So let's first explain what vitamin K is, what it does, how it's produced. 
Right. So vitamin K is a nutrient. It's found in food, and it's actually also produced by the good bacteria that live in our gut. It's an essential cofactor in the clotting cascade, so it allows the body to form blood clots and prevent bleeding. The problem in newborns is that very little vitamin K is transferred across the placenta during gestation. So During pregnancy, there's very little vitamin K that's um, transferred to the child, and there's very little vitamin K in breast milk and in formula. So infants don't really start making their own vitamin K until they start eating more solid foods, which is recommended starting around six months of age. And this is why we give all newborns an intramuscular injection of vitamin K. It allows for immediate use, and it also helps build up stores for the newborn and infant to have until their body starts making and producing vitamin K on their own. It's a very, very safe and effective way to prevent a really devastating complication, which is called hemorrhagic disease of the newborn or vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And so we can divide this up into three different categories. One is the early onset bleeding occurring on the first day of life. Um, The classical case, which is between days two and seven of life. And then there's late onset bleeding, which can occur up to six months of age. It can present in very different ways, all which results in bleeding. Um, The most common initial events are cephalohematomas, which is bleeding under the scalp here intracranial bleed, so bleeding within the brain, or bleeding in the GI tract, which can sometimes present as bloody stools or, you know, vomiting and feeding intolerance. Of course, these events are can be life-threatening and really lead to lifelong disability and potentially even death. So not anything we want to mess around with. Right. It really is tragic. I mean, especially when you consider if a child has an intracranial bleed, which may result in brain damage. And this is preventable by an intramuscular injection of vitamin K at birth. It's a really simple intervention. It is. Many parents may ask about the option of oral vitamin K. So like taking it like a supplement, um, almost like vitamin D drops that we give babies. And there are some countries that make both options available to parents. Um, There are some different oral regimens that you might hear about. Um, We are not going to get into all of them that have been studied, but usually it includes something like an oral dose after birth, followed by a dose about a week later, and then maybe around like a weekly dose while still breastfeeding until they're able to make more of their own stores later, closer to six months. Of course, you can imagine how hard it is to remember to give something every day or once a week. So this can lead to issues with forgetting Um, to give the medication and then result in treatment failure. Another barrier to oral vitamin K is that there is no FDA-approved oral form in the U.S., and so it can be difficult to obtain this. There is a liquid formulation, and some parents can buy it at natural food stores, but these um, liquid formulations may be dangerous because they have extra additives and the dose isn't tightly regulated. So in addition, with oral supplementation, there are still cases of vitamin K deficiency bleeding disorder. So this still happens. The risk may be reduced, but it's not reduced to the level as it is with the vitamin K injections. Definitely. And some parents may have read about a study that was published in the British Medical Journal in 1990, and it raised the concern that there was a risk of cancer that was doubled in babies who received vitamin K at birth. Um, Of course, this is something that would be scary if a parent read 
or any pediatrician for that matter, but there have been multiple, multiple studies trying to replicate this, and um, they have never found the association between vitamin K and cancer. Mm -hmm. Again, the side effects of vitamin K injection are very limited. You may get some irritation at the site of the injection. Um, A severe allergic reaction such as anaphylaxis is extremely rare, but has been reported. Of course, you can have an allergic reaction to anything. Mm -hmm. And in addition to vitamin K, erythromycin eye goop, hepatitis B vaccine, your newborn will get a blood spot screen. So they'll come in and move your baby over to the warmer maybe and do a little heel prick, almost like they're checking a blood sugar, and collect a little dot of blood from their heel. And this is a newborn screen, so it looks for a long list of genetic and congenital disorders. It's a little different depending on what state you live in. But a lot of these disorders require treatment right away or to initiate treatment really early on. So some examples of things that you may have heard of before that it looks for are things like PKU, hypothyroidism, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, sickle cell anemia, and many others. In California, where we practice, over 80 disorders are looked for on the newborn screen. This is usually collected by the heel stick. It's usually at about one to two days of age, and the results will be sent to your pediatrician, usually within the first week of life. So they'll usually bring it up with with you once you come in for a visit and tell you the results of the screen. But if they don't tell you about it, ask them about the results to just so that you know. Right, definitely. And in addition to that newborn screen, each child will obtain a screening for critical congenital heart disease with a pulse ox that's um, done right before they're discharged. So they usually check it on the right hand and either the left or right foot. It should be no discomfort for your baby. It's literally just like a sticker being wrapped around their hand or their wrist. And a normal screen is going to be above 95% in the hand and the foot there should be three points or less difference between the hand and the foot. So if it's less than 95 or there's a greater discrepancy between the hand and the foot, then it might need to be repeated. And if it's persistently low, then they may consider doing an echo or an ultrasound of the heart just to make sure that everything looks structurally normal. Each newborn will also have a hearing screen before being discharged to home. And this is usually done after 12 hours of life. A newborn may refer or fail a hearing screen due to a variety of causes, and so these include true hearing loss that children may have from birth, or maybe it's just noisy in the exam room or the child is crying at the time, or sometimes children are born with the amniotic fluid in their ear, and that can interfere with the hearing screen Also, most newborns who refer the hearing screen, that means they're going to need further testing. They don't have true hearing loss, and they will go on to pass their follow-up hearing screen. So if this happens, you'll have an appointment set up for repeat hearing screen before you leave the hospital, usually when your baby is one to two weeks old. Mm -hmm. And as you know, adequate hearing is so critical for the development of speech. And so that's why we've really moved to screen all babies um, before they're discharged from the newborn nursery. So we hope our discussion today really emphasizes the importance of all of these interventions in the newborn period and the really low risks that are associated with them and, and much higher consequences. You know, there have been increasingly popular trends, even among my closest friends, to have this more natural birth experience. Um, 
minimize interventions, but some of these are are in place because they're really essential for protecting your most precious gift, your baby. Um, and we know really this is what all parents want. And we want to really emphasize that they're safe interventions that you should feel comfortable doing. Really, the benefits of these interventions and the screens, um, really the, the benefits just clearly outweigh the, the very small risks associated with any of the things that we've discussed in this episode. Mm-hmm. So let's um, summarize um, this episode's topic. Definitely. So within the first two days after the birth of your newborn, when you're still in the hospital, they're going to get a few very, very important interventions. The first dose of hepatitis B vaccine, which significantly decreases the risk of perinatal or early transmission of hepatitis B to the newborn. We know that when infants are infected without proper immunization, they're more likely to be infected with hepatitis B for life and more likely to die from complications of hepatitis B in adulthood. So it's so important to get this. And they will also be given erythromycin eye ointment, which protects against a very dangerous eye infection from gonorrhea, um, gonococcal ophthalmia neonatorum, which may result in in blindness. Mm -hmm. And they're going to get an intramuscular injection of vitamin K, a vitamin that's essential for blood clotting. But unfortunately, babies don't really eat enough of and produce enough of until they're nearly six months old. So without this vitamin K injection, babies are at risk for life-threatening bleeding, which can occur any time from birth until they're close to six months old. So we really need to protect them. And all infants will get a newborn blood spot screen, which screens for treatable disorders and a heart disease and a hearing screen to catch any of these problems early on so that they can be addressed. Definitely. We would like to thank Dr. Laura Kerr. She's the medical director of the UC Davis Children's Hospital Newborn Nursery for reviewing today's episode, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. And that reminds me of a joke. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious what you were able to find for this one. Did you hear about the doctor who was going to make a joke about an unvaccinated newborn baby? No. Well, in the end, she gave it a shot. (laughs) <laughs> That's a great one. We hope everyone will give it give this a shot. Right. Have you seen any of these? I'm sure you have in your long career. You see probably perinatal transmission of hepatitis B. How about any of the um, goon eye infections? <laughs> yeah, I've certainly seen the perinatal transmission of hepatitis B. I've seen these kids when they're older and have chronic infection. Kids in their teens, as young as their teens, can die from hepatocellular carcinoma as a complication of that. Mm. More commonly, people get the liver cancer in their like 30s or 40s or sometimes in their 50s. So it mm. is a is is delayed, but I've certainly seen that. Um, uh, and then with the gonococcal eye infections, yeah, not so much lately, but years ago this was much more common. Um, kids would get that, and some of them did have complications that did impair their um, their vision. Yeah. Have you seen a decrease in these infections in the U.S. since we've gone to more widely used hepatitis immunization at birth? Or or since you've been in practice, have we been doing hepatitis B vaccines at birth? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely been a documented decrease in hepatitis B infections in children due to the perinatal immunization recommendations. Um, so this has been a very effective intervention um, in the U.S. And in fact, we're board certified, um, and so when we take our boards, there's these board questions, and one classic board question, we'll have a kid with hepatitis B infection, 
and they're an immigrant. They're always mm-hmm. pre- they're always presented as an immigrant from a country that's less developed with less resources that doesn't um, was, yeah. which is not able to provide um, perinatal hepatitis B immunization because in the U.S. Um, we do we do a very good job. Yeah, that's great. And I would like to say that my friend who submitted this question actually delivered two days ago, and so she welcomed a gorgeous baby boy into the world. So, so happy for her. And um, I know that little one will be well taken care of. Well, congratulations to her. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital.